Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. A win in NASCAR's Cup Series means everything. One driver enjoyed 200 wins and give that honor to seven-time champion Richard Petty. One driver enjoyed half that. Give that honor to three-time champion David Pearson with 105 victories. Then there are those that crossed under just one checkered flag during their careers, only one. 65 drivers in NASCAR's 74-year history hold the distinction of being a one-time, one-hit wonder. It's a very long list. No doubt they wanted more, but would gladly take the win as the greatest memory of their lives. Ironically, some of the absolute greatest drivers in motorsports history could only master winning just one NASCAR race during their careers. For the driver that wheeled the car to victory, thoughts of that special day has played in their minds over and over and over again. Every detail of that final lap Every shift of the transmission, every glance in the mirror, every voice heard over the two-way radio that day, the cheers of the fans, the pandemonium of Victory Lane, it's a moment in time that can never be taken away. A piece of glory that will always remain, that one time when everything came together just as it should have. Glory was finally theirs after years of planning, years of preparation, years of hardship, Years of dreaming that someday it would finally come together. As the years go by, drivers and fans have met. And with pen and postcard in hand, conversations have begun. That special day has been relived, even if it was 25 years ago. And no matter, it's just as remarkable today as it was back then. They proudly say, hey, I was there. I saw that happen. When the underdog bests the master in Cinderella fashion, It always feels good and offers hope that anyone can beat the odds and come through every now and then. The one-time winners do it all for all of us. They win when we need them to win, and they do it in the greatest of fashion. When we're down, when we're out, when things feel heavy, when we need a spiritual lift, for some drivers, one win was enough. For other drivers, one win was a reminder that maybe they should have won more races. Either way, a victory in NASCAR's Cup Series is forever golden in one's golden years. Welcome back to a lifetime of NASCAR podcast. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, along with my good buddy Ben White. And I'm telling you, Ben, I am pumped about this episode because... We're going to do something that has always been near and dear to my heart in two different ways. One of them is music, and the other one is NASCAR. And they both have kind of a, uh, a similarity because it's one-hit wonders. And we are going to talk about a lot of one-hit wonders 
you have got some great stuff put together already, and I, I know you've got some great sh- uh, stories to tell. And we're also going to talk about, you know, this is episode number 53. We're going to get into the uh, car number 53, as we do in every single episode. We talk about the car number that is in relation to the episode number. So at, this is episode 53 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. We'll get to that in a little while. But Ben, I want to start right off the bat with one-hit wonders. I mean, we've had some incredible names and, you know, names that people will immediately recognize more than likely from other genres of motorsports, but still some of the accomplishments and achievements they made in NASCAR. They may have only had one win in NASCAR, but it was huge in in more cases than not. So, I mean, first of all, before we get into the list, Ben, One Hit Wonders, and it's a very appropriately named uh, tagline, if you will, about uh, NASCAR, just like it is with music. You know, what is it about when a guy wins one race and, you know, for whatever reason, maybe he, you know, uh, it goes back to his other natural form of racing, another genre, or just never has that, that, uh, that luck. I mean, Trevor Bain, a good example of that, you know, in the cup series, he wins the Daytona 500 in uh, 2011. And uh, I just did a piece on him for uh, uh, out of the grooves of you know, the weekly viewers guide. And, you know, I was, you know, doing some research on him and I mean, yeah, he won two races in the, Xfinity series, but he only had the one win in the cup series. So he was a one hit wonder in the cup series. Now he hopes to get back in the cup series, but that's kind of the, 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 the kind of where I'm going with all this about one hit wonders that, you know, these guys typically have a pretty big flash. They have a, you know, a very big win, like Trevor Bain win in the 2011 Daytona 500. And you've got a couple of names that are just going to rock a lot of people. If they don't remember them, they're going to be kind of, uh, I, I, they'll definitely be surprised at some of the the names that uh, have won in NASCAR and they won only once. So I'm going to give it over to you, Ben. Let's, let's talk about the first guy on your list. Who's at the top of the one hit wonders, because this is probably one of the biggest names in motorsports history and uh, great guy, very friendly, um, did a heck of a lot and won a number of races and championships. I think we won 52 wins. I think if I remember correctly um, in the, in the open wheel world, we'll leave it at that. But uh, tell us about number one on our list because we've got a number of guys to go through. Who's who's yeah. the number one one hit wonder in NASCAR? Well, it's a guy, Jerry, that you would not associate with NASCAR by any stretch of the imagination. But he actually won they they told him 500 1967 NASCAR's biggest race, NASCAR's premier race. Believe it or not. Mario Andretti won the 1967 Daytona 500 and the story behind his victory was he was driving for Mar- uh, Holman Moody at the time, which is if you, we, I know you've heard us talk about Holman Moody many times on the podcast, but Holman Moody in that era of the sixties was basically this, it was Ford motor Company's race car division. And if you had the money to do so, uh, you could go in there and say, hello, uh, John Holman. Hello, Ralph Moody. I want to buy a Ford Fairlane or a Ford galaxy ready to go racing. It's going to be turnkey. Uh, I see you in a week or so, and I'll come back and get it. I want it to be painted white or red or blue or whatever the color may be. And I'll come pick it up. And I think the cost back then, I know Daryl Waltrip told me one time recently, he bought a car uh, in that era about 1970, 71, he paid $12,500 for a car, a home car at that era. So it might not be quite that much in 67. Let's call it 10 grand. And uh, so you could buy it turnkey. And uh, 
So not only did they build the race cars for other people, mm -hmm. but they also raced the cars with top drivers to show the performance level. And they did it through Ford Motor Company because back in those days, it was very, uh, very well known that the, the slogan that they had back in those days, uh, win on Sunday, sell on Monday. Right. And, and they did that. And then a lot of times people would see cars win on Sunday afternoon and they run down to the local dealership and buy that same type of car on Monday, because they were very, very close in those days. Not like today, uh, you would see a, a Ford galaxy or, a, or a, a Dodge or a Plymouth or not so much Chevrolet in, in that time, because there weren't that many Chevrolets in the sixties racing early sixties. Yes. Not in the late sixties. Uh, and so they would win, uh, on Sunday, sell on Monday. So back to Mario Andretti, he wins the 1967 Daytona 500. And the side story to that was he was an open wheel driver. As Jerry said, he gets in this car, very potent car, strong engine, uh, Waddell Wilson built engine. And he's basically all over the place. And that's kind of why, uh, smoking the tires in every turn at Daytona. And that's why nobody could race with him because he was loose as a goose, as they say, <laughs> and, uh, smoke it all over the place, but he ends up winning the race uh, in that 67 uh, Ford Galaxy. By the way, interesting side, side story, a double side story. Daryl Waltrip actually bought that car uh, and ended up winning uh, some sportsman races in it. And then it got crashed a couple of times. They reskinned it. Uh, uh, Hutcherson Pagan was the company. Eddie Pagan and Dick Hutcherson put a Mercury body on the car and uh, that was the first car that Darrell Walter drove in the uh, in the Cup Series in 1972. But the chassis and uh, all underneath that skinned 71 Mercury Cyclone was the same car that Mario Andretti drove to victory that day in 67. Cool. But I that never was, knew that. Never knew yeah, that. sure was. Yeah. Oh. And that was the only time that Mario Andretti won in the Cup Series. But he was, of course, world renowned as far as winning in the open wheel uh, cars. And he was, of course, a Formula One champion and oh my gosh so i gotta just say mario andretti and there's uh you just have to say mario everybody knows who you're yeah, talking about <laughs> exactly mario yeah exactly and you uh of course you know who he is so that was uh 1967 of course we talked about ron burchard a, a one-time winner in the cup series in 1981 when he snookered darrell waltrip and terry labani at talladega to get his single victory uh, Mark Donahue, who was a longtime uh, Roger Penske driver, he won one time at Riverside, California in the American Motors Matador in 1973, January of 73, only time he won in the Cup Series. And then in 1990, Brett Bodine won at Wilkesboro, driving for Kenny Bernstein, the, uh, the drag racing uh, champion who also owned the Cup Series team. That was his lone victory in Wilkesboro. Yeah, Kenny, actually at that time, if I'm not mistaken, Kenny not only had the drag racing team, which he obviously drove the, um, well, he, he went back and forth between funny car and top fuel, but he also had the NASCAR team and he also had an IndyCar team at the same time. He had three teams going and, um, uh, you know, he, he eventually decided to liquidate the other two teams and stay stuck with drag racing. But I mean, to have three different teams in three different series, that's always been one of the, uh, you know, the hallmarks, I think, uh, in my mind of Kenny Bernstein. I know, I know Kenny very well. And, I mean, you know, he, he was such a, 
uh, a hands-on guy, but he was also so great with personnel as well, too. So, you know, when, when Brett won that race, I was just so happy and thrilled for Kenny to, to finally get that, uh, the NASCAR win off, you know, off his, the, his shoulders, if you will, too. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And, you know, he had Ricky Rudd driving the car and, right. and, uh, Joe Rutman was in the car for a couple of years. Morgan Shepard drove that car. It's a 26 Quaker state car, beautiful green car. Mm-hmm for for several years in the cup series but brett Woodine did uh, come across as the winner there was a scoring a little bit of a scoring snafu with that particular race uh, that uh, some people didn't think that brett was picked up as the the race winner or one of the last caution or uh, leader i should say pardon me and uh but yep he was uh, picked up as the leader he went on to win the race and that was brett Woodine's lone victory and then there was a victory back in 1973 with uh, Dick Brooks, who was a longtime uh, driver in the Cup Series, uh, and he was driving a uh, number 22 Plymouth, a black Plymouth that happened to have Mickey Mouse on the hood. He didn't have any sponsors on the sides, but his team owner, I think his name was Bill Crawford, was a, uh, a pilot for one of the major airlines, and he wanted to drive the car. He bought the car to drive at Talladega, and NASCAR said, wait, hold the phone. You don't have any experience, so let's get you a driver that does. And he was way back in the field, Dick Brooks was, and several things happened during the race. One thing led to another, and suddenly Dick Brooks finds himself uh, in the lead late in the race and ends up winning it. Sadly, that's the the race that we lost uh, Larry Smith, who was uh, involved in a crash that day and and lost his life in that crash. But, uh, yeah, just uh, – by the way, there's 65 drivers in NASCAR history that have won – one race, uh, and and that's the only way race that they won. There's a, a long list of drivers that uh, have gone to victory lane, and oh my gosh, I mean we could spend probably three hours talking about all these guys. They're all very talented uh, and had great careers in NASCAR, but they just there's just so many that went to to victory lane once. They had a lot of great races. Uh, a lot of great finishes, but it could only break through to victory lane only once. And another one real quick that comes to mind, Richard Brickhouse, who won mm-hmm. the first race at Talladega, uh, September of 1969. That was the race they had the PDA, which is the drivers, uh, professional drivers association. A lot of the top drivers didn't like the tire compound. The tires were tearing up terribly. So a long, uh, conversation of about three days off and on with Bill France, senior founder of NASCAR. Finally, they said, we're done. We're out of here. Uh, some of the guys stayed Richard Brickhouse, one of them. And ironically, that's when they let the grand American cars come in and fill the void. One of those guys was Richard Childress. He ends up, uh, having a pretty good, I think it was a top 10 finish. And the money he won from that race was the beginning of RCR Enterprises. And that's what he used the money for. And then he went on to, of course, be, uh, start 285 Cup Series races in his career. He did not win a race, but he hires Dale Earnhardt uh, to come in and uh, run 10 races in 81. And then comes back in 84. They win six of his seven championships together and 67 of 76 races for Dale Earnhardt. And it all started from that particular race because he told me, he said, I used that money to start my first race shop of not in the same location, but the same sh- of that first shop. And that's how it all started. So just little side stories with all these, these victories or these first starts. But yeah, a lot of, lot of guys 
uh, had that first victory uh, or first uh, first time in these some of these races, and that's where it all began. You know, when you said Brickhouse and you said PDA, the first thing I thought of that I didn't think of the Professional Drivers Association, but I thought of public display of affection. <laughs> Let's go. What the heck is that? Oh, well, there wasn't very much of that going on that day. I can tell you that. No, they were pretty upset with Mr. France because he kept saying, go out and race. And if the tires act like they're going to tear up, just get off the throttle a little bit. Now, think about that a second. You got 40 guys and they make their living doing 200 miles an hour. It's a little hard for those guys to get off the throttle. And I th- matter of fact, I think that statement sort of was the last straw. And <laughs> right. they said, nah, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to the house. And right. that's what they did. And, uh, source, you know, that's and the, and the PDA really didn't last much longer after that. They decided to, you know, to make up and become friends and fall back in love with one another. But it was a very tense time because the, again, 2.66 miles at Talladega, the, the tires are tearing up and, and it wasn't safe. And, you know, it was a, a meeting of the minds after that was all said and done. But there were some guys like, for instance, Bobby Isaac and, and Richard Brickhouse and Jim Van, Vandiver and mm-hmm. some of the guys. And that one even finished under some protests because Vandiver went to, you know, the remainder of his life said, I won that race. And, and NASCAR said, no, Richard Brickhouse won it. And that there was controversy after the controversy, if you will. And uh, so, yeah, that one, that one spread out for many years, but uh, that was the first race at Talladega. Of course, we've had many, many, many more races since then, but that's the way it all started. You mentioned when we were off the air, you just said something that I, I wanted to kind of follow up on a little bit on, about uh, the one hit wonders. So many did it at Talladega. What was it about? Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned that, you know, that, uh, I mean, we, you would think that, and I say this in total uh, respect and humility, but you would think that a, a track that size, that large, that challenging would be the last place a guy would win his first ever win. What was it about Talladega that led so many guys to, to win there? Uh, the well, first I, th- I think it's two things, Jerry. I think number one is Talladega is so unpredictable. You could be 20th one lap and first the next yeah. with the draft and, mm-hmm and such close racing. And I think the second part of that, you have to go back sort of like the Ron Burchard story where most times, like say, uh, say at, at Daytona, you've got the start finish line, right. Uh, right. At the, basically the center of the trioval where at, at Talladega, it's about I'm guessing about 500 yards, uh, down the way. And mm-hmm. so that 500 yards could really make, or break uh, the hopes of many drivers where, uh, and that's the way Bill France senior designed it. He wanted it to be just a little more exciting for the fans uh, to say, all right, that's not where the typical start finish line would be. And that, and that extra 500 yards has uh, dictated different drivers a lot of times to go on to victory lane there, but yeah, the closeness of those, uh, the packs and in the, uh, the, the way Talladega, the, the fast laps and just the way Talladega is. And I've seen so many times where you see a car 15th and then the next lap he's uh, fifth. And, and we go back to 2000, October, 2000, when Dale Earnhardt had his last victory, his 76th and final victory where he passed uh, 18 cars in the last five, four laps, five laps. Wow. And it was amazing to watch him do that. He put on a clinic that day. Uh, he was honestly eight, you know, way back. Uh, and 
in the last five laps, like 18th to first. And it was amazing to watch him do that. And he had some drafting help from Kenny Wallace that day. And it was like, holy cow, there's no way he can go from that far back and win this race. And by gosh, he did it. He and, did it right. I mean, it was amazing to watch him do that. But again, he had some drafting help, but he knew he knew that racetrack. I mean, he won there many, many times. And I think he was pretty amazed too to be able to do that. But he was on rails uh, that day and to see him come from so far back and and maybe in the last three laps. I mean, it was amazing to watch him do that. And uh, that was Talladega, typical Talladega, but that final 500 yards uh, moving, moving that start finish line down just a little bit it has dictated new winners that, uh, you know, had, had a chance to get past, uh, some other guys. And, and, uh, we've seen many victories come by just a smidge of a bumper, uh, as they cross the start finish line there at Talladega it makes it very exciting. Does that mean Earnhardt was a 76 hit wonder? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was, he was a wonder everywhere he went. I can it's tell you that he was, he, you know, and I'll tell you another thing too, while we're talking about it, you know, he, he used to, he would all the time say, I can see the air. I can see the air. Well, I'll tell you how that happened. I, and I heard it straight from the person who kind of put that in his head. It's the late Nelson Crozier, you know, Nelson was mm-hmm. the radio guy and he was the guy who would get in these race cars and set these things up for CBS sports and NBC sports where he would help set up the cameras. He set up the radio hookups and those types of, we lost Nelson last year, just a really sweet, wonderful guy, wonderful guy, just somebody very knowledgeable about all this electronic stuff way over my head. <laughs> and I mean, seriously, he, he was so good about, he was sort of a go-to guy. If you had a problem with radios, or had a problem with cameras, or had a problem with anything electronic, Nelson was the guy. So early 90, late 80s, he was sitting around talking to Earnhardt about, you know, killing some time, I think, during a rain delay. And they were talking about this seeing the air. He said, you know, when you get down the interstate and you are going around a truck and you see all this water coming off the tires, you know, you should watch how the water comes off the tires and when the changing lanes and stuff like that, it sort of clicked with Earnhardt. And he said, yeah, I get it. I get it. So... When he got on the racetrack again, he was sort of watching, he could sort of visualize this rain type scenario mm-hmm. and it sort of clicked in his mind. And he's that, so that's kind of what he meant when he said, I could see the air and sort of visualize how this was coming down. But I mean, he was, he was an extremely smart person, uh, on the track, off the track, common sense sort of guy. And, uh, I don't know, just, it, but he could visualize a very innovative sort of person. Um, he knew what was coming down long before it happened. Very smart guy. And, uh, so yeah, that's kind of how that worked. Nelson sort of put him onto that idea. And then when he got on the racetrack, he sort of visualized these packs in places like Talladega and Daytona and sort of visualize what was going to happen five laps before they happened. And that's why you saw him be able to maneuver around some of these packs. And when they got into some serious, trouble when they started spinning and things like that. And Earnhardt would always emerge unscathed every time. And that's how he did it because he, he could, he could see these packs and how they were forming and how some would go high and low. And he could always find that hole. That's, that's partly why, because Nelson sort of put him onto that. Right. Right. That's interesting. You know, I wanted to go back to the number one guy on our list, Mario Andretti for a minute. You know, I I've known Mario for a long time and 
the couple things I wanted to, to mention about him, you know, he's been asked this a million times and he's always said that he wanted to challenge the best of the best in open wheel. And that's why he net, did not stay in NASCAR. I mean, he had, I think, what was it? I think he had a total of, I want to say five starts. Maybe I might be off on that, but um, uh, you know, in addition to winning the Daytona 500 in right. 1967, but you know, he wanted to challenge AJ Foyt, you know, he, uh, you know, right around that time, that's when um, the Unzers, uh, L Unzer and Bobby Unzer, they were starting to you know, come into prominence, et cetera. But I've often wondered, and, you know, I do this a lot with drivers from one series, wondering how they would do if they would have stayed in another series. And I, I, you know, when I think of Mario Andretti, obviously, you know, the first thing you think of is open wheel, you think of Indy 500, you think of, you know, Daytona. I mean, uh, but I wonder if, if, if things had changed, things had been different, you know, here's a guy who essentially you know, came from Italy to make his fame and fortune in the U S but he'd started racing in his native land. Then he came over here to let race more. I often wonder what he, how he would have turned out if he would have stayed in NASCAR full time. And I honestly, I think that, you know, he did say that it was definitely more difficult to drive a NASCAR car than it was an IndyCar, yeah, because obviously IndyCar is a little bit more sleeker. It's almost half the weight of a of a stock car, things like uh, that. Mm -hmm. But I mean, just that innate natural talent that Mario had. I often wonder if even if he would have stayed, you know, for whatever the circumstance was, and he decided to stay in, in NASCAR, I think that he would very easily have won probably maybe 20 to 30 wins and at least two or three championships. I mean, I just, his, his natural talent, you know, just transcended whatever he was in, you know, be it a, uh, a NASCAR car or a, uh, an Indy car. I just think he would have done very, very well. But of course, you know, he wound up uh, going for fame and fortune and got a lot of that number of championships, 52 wins, I believe it was in, uh, in the IndyCar world. So, I, I mean, just your thoughts about Mario, if he would have stayed in NASCAR, what do you think he would have done? Well, uh, and I'll take that even a step further, you know, had that race in Daytona gone a little smoother for him too. I think he, he struggled a little bit with that heavier 67 Fairlane he was driving. And then when he got in the race, uh, had some handling problems with the car. And, and like I said, all four tires were smoking on that thing all day long. And, and, uh, the other drivers, you know, Fred Lorenzen was a teammate to him at home and Moody and some others a little bit afraid, quite honestly, to get up there and race with him for fear he was going to take him out because yeah. he was, he was so loose in the car and could never really get it dialed in the way he wanted it uh, because he wasn't used to something so heavy. So uh, as that car was, and so, yeah, th if that had been a better experience for him, um, who knows? I mean, and that was, that was also to, to be fair, that was a product of Ford motor company mm -hmm. too, to put him in the car uh, to, you know, to see how he would do. He was already becoming a big star in their camp and uh they, they also had Fred, you know, Fred Lorenzen was uh, uh, a big star in the Ford camp too. And, and by April of 67, uh, Fred Lorenzen had already stepped away, announced uh, very similar to the Carl Edwards move mm -hmm. when Carl's just abruptly stepped away. It was a big surprise when Fred left uh, and he, he stepped away for health, health issues. He was having some stomach ulcers and, uh, and his agent, had said to him, you know, you got all the money in the world. You don't need to do this anymore, which talk about Fred Lorenzen. Uh, and, you know, he had already one season, he'd made over a hundred thousand, $112,000, which in, in 1967 
mid sixties was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. It still is to me. Uh, I'd love to have a hundred thousand in the bank <laughs> right now, but an uh, extra hundred thousand. But I mean, it, that at that time, you know, Fred was uh, at uh, moving into a new phase of his life, and he abruptly stepped away. So maybe they had inklings of that that Mario could possibly get in the twenty eight car and possibly, you know, go into stock cars. And he may have voiced to them and said, no, this is really not where I want to be. I want to be in the open wheel cars. Back to, to Fred Lorenzen, after he did that, and even when I spoke to him at length in 1991 in Atlanta for an article I was writing for American Stock Car Racers, uh, the book series, mm -hmm. uh, he told me, he said, it's the worst, absolute, unequivocally, the worst mistake I ever made. Because I wish I had not stepped away in 67. I was still at the prime of my career, but I had people telling me, you know, you step away, you got money in the stock market, you put a lot of money in Exxon or Esso at the time, mm -hmm. uh, and they ended up losing a lot of money and in the stock market. So, I mean, he just, he just was, he made the, the, the decision to step away. Mario was in the shadows. Mario said, no, I don't want to go stock car racing. I want to car racing. And, you know, Fred Lorenzen, I'm, I'm talking about both drivers now here, but Fred did come back uh, in, in 1971 uh, and drove a little bit uh, and tried to come back with Haas Ellington and a couple of other team owners. And, and the magic just wasn't there anymore. He had stepped away a couple of years and it just wasn't there. And then he stepped away for good and actually made a, a movie, believe it or not. He was uh, the main character in a movie and it was produced and got to say it wasn't all that great. Uh, yeah, but, you know, but yeah, but to be fair, I mean, and, I, and yeah. I, I, I've interviewed him a few times. He lives here in Chicago. Uh, sadly, yeah. he's he's um, he's in he's having some health issues. Uh, right. But the, to be fair about that, he was he did have those that Hollywood look, that Tab Hunter. Yeah, look. I mean, and I, I'll, bet so. you, I'll bet you if you ask anybody that's 20 years old right now, they're going to say, Tab who? You know, you know, you know who Tab Hunter is. <laughs> oh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, he was, I do. You know, he had, you know, the, the blondish hair, you know, you just, he he had those Hollywood looks. Yeah, the movie, the movie. No question. The movie movie left a lot to be desired. But, you know, the, the thing I like about Fred Lorenzen is that you're right. I mean, he did, he the stomach ulcers were, yeah, and this is not an exaggeration, they were killing him. And right. so he decided to step away and, it, you know, but he was very extremely savvy with his money. I mean, he was so, you know, he did, like you said, he did lose a lot of it, but I mean, he, he, when he stepped away, uh, it was also not just because of his stomach, but also his family. He wanted to be there for his family. You know, they were starting to grow up. He did not want to be a, you know, a, a father that saw his kids for two days a week and then, you know, was on the road for five days a week. So uh, he went into real estate here in the Chicago area, did very, very well in that. Um, you know, and it just, you know, it's, it's sad to see what, how he's, become you know since then because of you mm -hmm. know the the uh the alzheimer's that he has but i remember i interviewed him probably oh i don't know maybe uh this must have been like 2015 i think it was or 14 something like that it was the year before they honored him at chicagoland speedway uh they have like their walk of fame which of course chicagoland speedway is essentially for all intents and purposes gone it's still there but it's not going to be there much longer but i remember i had a chance to, to talk to fred and um his daughter she was fantastic was just a great great lady and you know she was very um and rightfully concerned about some of the questions i was going to ask him and i you know i, I told her it was gonna be a very positive interview 
And, you know, because my mother had Alzheimer's, I kind of knew how to interact, I guess is probably the best way to phrase it. So went to see, uh, see, uh, see him, Fred at his, um, he was at a, an assisted living, uh, loca- uh, facility and we, we actually did two interviews. We did one before lunch and, uh, he, he was kind of like on a schedule. So he had to do lunch. So we broke for lunch for about an hour. We came back and did a, the second interview probably took about, I don't know, maybe combined, maybe two hours all, all told, but it just was so fascinating because even though he kind of started struggling a little bit about remembering things currently his recall and memory of the past was like it was just yesterday i mean he was so well spot on to remember all that stuff and that just always amazed me about fred lorenzen and um, you know uh, it's 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 the, the main thing is he got into the Hall of Fame, NASCAR Hall of Fame. That was the biggest thing. But uh, yeah. he was, it was and just great really, to see that. Yes, right, very exactly. well deserved and great exactly. to see that. And uh, yeah, it was just a great interview back in those days. And you know what? I want to share this too while we're talking about Fred. Sure. Um, he was very kind. We did the interview for, again, for American Stock Car, or, uh, American Stock Car Classics, American Racing Classics, excuse me. I've written so many things. <laughs> and um, yeah, and we did it for that. And very gracious, very kind, and covered a lot of ground. And it wasn't, this is back in 1992, I want to say, when we were with Griggs Publishing Company with uh, NASCAR C, NASCAR Illustrated. And this was a spinoff of those, Mm -hmm. another publication there. And, um, you know, a couple months went by after that and went to the mailbox one day. And I had this really neat letter from Fred, just a thank you. I enjoyed our visit. Really great interview enjoyed the time we spent together just very classy it was written on the stationery of his real estate company mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i don't know it's just meant the world to me it's, oh my gosh i got a letter from fred lorenzen in the mail it just i don't know it it just meant so much to me that he took a minute out of his day you know to to write me a thank you note i've still got it and it's just um i don't know the man you know fred lorenzen Winner of 26 races, uh, star of the 60s, took a minute to write me a thank you note. It Very just classy. meant the world to me. And I yeah. still still have it. And uh, sad to see uh, what he's been going through the past few years. But I, I often go back and look at a lot of those uh, uh, older races, if I can find them, you know, mm-hmm. in places like YouTube and stuff, and think, man, he was the man to beat in the 60s. He was, a, you know... Uh, the golden boy, as they called him, you know, just, just a great individual. I just really appreciate the note. It meant the world to me. I still have it. Really exactly. nice. You know, and, and one, one other thing, I know we got a few other uh, names we want to yeah. talk about. Yeah. One hit of wonders, but I want to go back one other thing. And I never asked him this, but I'll tell you the next time I see him, if I can remember, I'm going to ask Mario Andretti this question. Mm-hmm. Okay. Obviously, you know, you don't even need to say Andretti. You just say Mario and everybody knows who you're talking right. about. But I have to wonder, you know, I, I, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I used to be a really, <laughs> you're going to laugh at this. I know you're going to laugh at this. I'm gonna, kind of embarrassed to say this, but I was a big gamer. I mean, I would, you would do racing games, you know, simulating games. And I've always wondered the one Nintendo game, Mario Kart. I, it had to be <laughs> named after him because, you know, first of all, uh, him and uh, the other, uh, his nemesis, Luigi, they both spoken in Italian accents, but I mean, I've got to think, okay, 
Mario Kart. Well, okay, who is the first name most people are going to identify with it? Mario Andretti. Now, if you would have called it AJ Kart, probably not. If you would have called it, uh, <laughs> maybe let's say um, uh, Al Kart, no, they're not going to realize that was Al Unzer. But you say Mario, and I've, I've got to ask him if he, if they ever did indeed name that um, that uh, series a racing series because there was a number of spinoffs of a, a Mario Kart. If they named it from him, and more importantly, does he get any kind of royalties? He definitely deserves royalties for that stuff, you know. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know, but I gotta say, every time I somebody says AJ, I always think of Foyt. That's yep. just me. Exactly. I always think of that. But uh, yeah, but you know, talking about these, we'll move on here. We're talking about all these guys, sixty-five guys who have won one race in NASCAR. I mean, that's that's pretty cool to to say there's a lot, there's thousands of guys that's raced in NASCAR over the 40, you know, what, 74 years that did not ever go to victory lane. So to say, I want to race in NASCAR, that's, that's pretty big. Exactly. I mean, you know, the one thing that, um, I think, who was it? It was, um, I think it was Derek Cope, if I remember correctly, I, I may be wrong, but I think it was Derek. Is he, I, I'm confused. I may be confusing him with, with Sterling Marlin, but one of them said that, you know, to always, even if you just win one race in your career, if especially if it's a Daytona, you can you'll always be known as a Daytona champion. You know? yeah. And even if even mm-hmm. if you win, let's say at a, you know, if you won at a Martinsville or a Darlington or a you know a Dover, you know the fact that you were a one-time winner, you know that's like you said, it's so much um, more uh, of an accomplishment than a lot of guys who never won a race. You know, so but mm-hmm. I, I agree with you there. Yeah. Tell, tell, yep. us, tell me a few other names that, uh, you know, stand out to you, Ben, on that list. I mean, obviously, we, we talked a little bit about Trevor Bain. I mean, I think that especially, you know, since we're talking about Trevor, you know, he uh, he came back last Saturday in the Xfinity race. He's going to he's end up doing a seven uh, race deal for uh, for Joe Gibbs racing in the Xfinity series. And he said in this interview with NASCAR.com a couple of days before the race, he planned on winning three to five of those seven starts he has. And gosh, darn it. I mean, if, if he, I, I thought for sure he was going to pull it off because he, he qualified fourth. It's a, at Fontana won the uh, stage one, he had a little problem in stage two, but it came back really strong in stage in the final stage. And, you know, he wound up finishing third, but hell that's, that's almost like a win considering he hadn't raced, you know, competitively, um, you know, other than the truck series in 2020, I mean, he hadn't raced competitively in the Xfinity series since 2016 and his last cup race was in 2018. So kudos to him. But I mean, that, that one hit wonder, uh, tag with him in Daytona, I hope to gosh that, you know, he eventually gets back to the cup series and winds up winning a lot more cup races. I think that he's got the talent, he's got the ability. Yeah. He's 31 years old now, but at the same time, you know, a lot of people could say that, you know, when you're in your early thirties, you're in the prime of your racing career. So yeah. uh, we'll see what happens with him. Well, that's true, Jerry. And I think that, I think it's a good and bad. I think it's a double-edged sword. You win a race in NASCAR, but you don't want to be remembered for winning a race in NASCAR. That's right. You know I'm saying? Yep, you, yep. you want to be able to say I've won more than one or five or 10 or whatever the case may be. But uh, yeah, it's, it might, you know, it, it, I'm sure it bugs the guy who's only got one. So he wants to, wants to do more than one, but I mean, looking at the list here, I mean, you've got uh, the one, there's a guy named Earl Balmer and I just, mm-hmm. I love the name. I, the one I'm sorry, but the one thing I remember about him I, uh, he did win one time in NASCAR, but I remember one time he got in trouble at Darlington Raceway in the in the early '60s. And back in those days, the press box was uh, what is now. Got to think about this because they changed it. It would be turn three now, mm-hmm. and it was an open air press box. And when you went there, 
uh, you you got a, I wasn't old enough to do this, by the way. I'm not that old, but you got a <laughs> pair of you got a pair of racing goggles. You thought, oh great, this is great. What how nice of them to give me this souvenir? Well, it wasn't a souvenir. You had to put them on because when the cars came into what was then turn one, you had a typewriter in your papers and and all the dust and all the rubber would come into the the press area because it was an open air where air press box well good old earl here he got a little high coming in there and he just took out half the press box and everybody just you know dove for the ditches and that's it was i believe in the 65 southern 500 but anyway <laughs> he did win one race he that's one of the things he was famous for he didn't mean to do it he was just <laughs> got a little high there and you know maybe he didn't like something that some of the writers wrote that week i don't know but anyway, didn't mean to. He just kind of got a little high there. Nobody got uh, hurt, did they? I mean, I, I, no, no, and nobody got hurt. A little damage to the typewriters, maybe, but <laughs> <laughs> a little paper got scattered, but everything was fine. Uh, so, uh, Johnny Benson was another one that won a race in NASCAR um, in the 2000s. Uh, Bob Burdick, who we're going to talk about just a little bit later, great story there. Um, going down the list here, just Bobby Hill and Jr. won at Talladega in 1986. Um, Johnny Mance, that's one. He won the 1950 Southern 500, first time they raced in Darlington. Had 78, 80 cars in that race. Boy, don't you know that was a traffic jam, like <laughs> Sunday after Friday afternoon going into Charlotte. Uh, yeah, but he won that one. Um, Phil Parsons won a race also at Talladega. That was in 1988, I believe. Uh, let's see. Lenny Pond, another, you know, we talked about all these drivers winning at, uh, at Talladega. He pulled off a victory there for, uh, 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 in 1978, that was for uh, Win Incorporated was the team, a very early uh, win there for that race team that ended up being Robert Yates racing later, later on. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah. Greg Sachs, of course, he won the race in 1985 at the, uh, at Daytona July firecracker 400 race. Of course, that's when we talked about a few weeks ago, how Bobby Allison came in and his, all of his crew was down with mm -hmm. the, the number 51 car with, uh, Greg Sachs driving for die guard. Can you imagine coming in for pits to your pits for tires and fuel and there's nobody to do it? So hmm, that didn't go over very well. Uh, Lake Speed also won a race at Darlington in 1988. The only time he won a race there. So, yeah, there's just been a lot of drivers that uh, that have won. There's also a guy named Jack White. He was my uncle. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where he was, but he was a winner. So there you go. Hey, maybe but, it's this third cousin removed. You never know. Could be. Could be. We're, you know, cousin to Rex. You never That's know. That's right. Rex we're all, hey, we're we're all one big happy racing family. So this is true. You. This is true. Well, you know, so there you go. I, I, I've got to ask you this. I mean, you know, the, mm -hmm. a lot of the names you mentioned, um, they're, they're just, it's such a distinction for them. You know, in, in, when you talk to guys, especially guys who've won only one race and we're, and I'm talking, 20, 30 years later after they won that race, you know, they're in retirement or whatever. Mm -hmm. How much do they, you know, you know how much I do a lot of these, where are they now stories. So I'm, I'm right. kind of playing off that a little bit. How much do these guys remember about that one win? I mean, is there a recall just so good? Like it was, a, it was, it was as if it was yesterday, or I'm just curious how, you know, how they remember what they were experiencing, the fan response, all that kind of thing. I think there is uh I think it depends on 
what that race meant to them or mm. you know it's it's funny you say that because some of the drivers really want to recall that race and and uh, really enjoyed living that race again and some of the drivers I've I've talked to they they just want to put it in the past and move on and and they really don't want to talk much about it it's a, it's a one way or the other way it's one extreme to the other extreme I've experienced some of that before where they just they could tell you every lap they led they could tell you every car they passed uh, some in some cases and they remember it vividly and others they were very shy about it and say yeah I was in NASCAR once well can you talk about it? I don't remember all that much you know it, it just depends on what direction they want to go in it's funny how it's it's interesting you say that because I've encountered both and um, finally if you get the crowbar out and you can really pry out yeah. some information from them then they they'll yeah they'll kind of loosen up a little bit but it you know that some of them are kind of embarrassed it was only one win and then some are super proud of it and and i'm sure the wife says okay honey you've covered that you know <laughs> you know for the seventh time this week but uh you know what i mean it's it just depends on on if they really want to talk about it or if they just want to leave it in the in the closet you know right. what I mean? or, or the wife may say well, you didn't mention this or you didn't mention that. Keep going, you know. <laughs> hey, yeah, you know what, though, Jerry, I found this too. You know, uh, I loved, I loved, I loved Buddy Baker. I loved him to death and I, mm -hmm. he was a great friend. But, you know, Buddy had this thing about the, the older he got, the more embellished the story got. <laughs> you know, I mean, and there was a time I loved Bobby Allison. Bobby's my second dad. Okay. I love Bobby. I really do. We go to lunch together a lot and we, he's over at the house a lot and stuff. But I, he'd say, I say, okay, Bobby, we're talking about the, you know, the 1971 race at Dover and you, you led 16 laps, but you had engine trouble. He said, I just don't, you know, wait, 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 let me do my Bobby Allison pressure. He's like, well, let me tell you, I don't know that I remember it that way. <laughs> and it's like, I'm sure I won that. No, you didn't. Here it is in the book. No, no, I'm sure I won it. You know, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it's like the more, the older they get, the more embellished the story gets. Yep. It's like, I'm sure I'll let half of that. No, you didn't. <laughs> no, you oh, didn't. no. Here it is right here. You dropped a cylinder and, or you crashed. No, no, I'm sure. And I'm sure I won. And you're still friends yeah. with them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But he hasn't come over to eat lately. So there you go. But no, buddy, buddy would, buddy would, I loved him, but he would, he's like, he, you have to go back and some of the older guys, you got to go back and really look at the story because that's not the way they remember it. Right. They remember leading half the race and they finished the won it. I'm sure I won it. And, uh, you know, that's all, all older drivers. You got to go back and look at the record book because they, and as time, as the years go by and the time goes by, they, they think, well, I'm, I'm sure I won. You know, <laughs> right. No, no, not that one. Well, you know, I, I got to ask you this. And you, you mentioned mm -hmm. this. Uh, we, we talked about this a little bit off the air uh, before we started taping. But yeah, we'd be remiss if I didn't, or I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this. Because you had something happen to you a couple of weeks back. You've done this almost, you know, many, many years. I know I went to a few times to it. The legends of racing, you know, oh, yeah. about three or four days before the Daytona 500. Uh, we were talking about Ernie Irvin. I talked to Ernie just like you did last week, and he was talking about he was there. Linda Vaughn was there. I just talked to her a couple of days ago. Um, the legends of racing, in my opinion, you know, they, they do it. They do it at the Streamline Hotel, you know, uh, every year, uh, or they actually did, did it at the Daytona Convention Center for a few years as well too. If you're a race fan, especially if you're an old time race fan, if you ever 
get the opportunity to go to the Daytona 500, or even if you can't go to the 500, but you want to see and be around some of the greats of racing, like Bobby Allison and Ernie Irvin or Linda Vaughn, or you, you name the, the individuals that are still, you know, still with us, I would highly recommend that thing because it's such a great opportunity, not only to you know, be regaled with stories, even some of them, if they're, maybe some of them may even be a few tall tales as well too, but yeah, you know, that's the, okay. <laughs> yeah, but the opportunity is to get autographs and photographs and interact mm-hmm. with these guys. It, I mean, and the, the thing is, and one thing I've noticed when I think I went to three or four of them uh, over the years, um, the one thing I noticed is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think you're going to probably, I, th- I think I know what you're going to say, but the drivers themselves, the past legends probably get as much, maybe if not more out of something like that than the fans do because you know, they're in their element, they're in with the guys they used to race in, and yet they're also the the centers of attention for the fans. You know, the, the fans just love talking to them and, you know, bringing up old, you know, races and things like that. Tell, tell me, tell us a little bit about, you know, this oh, year's yeah. Legends of Racing for you. Well, oh, man, I'm telling you, that was so much fun for me. First off, a little bit of background. The Streamline Hotel there in Daytona is where they're the first meeting of all the guys who were trying to help Bill French senior organize NASCAR. I mean, that is the biggest, huge, biggest thing in the world right there, because it was, uh, it consisted of businessmen, farmers, moonshiners, motorcycle racers, anybody who had anything to do with going fast. Okay. He put out the word that said, if you want to come to this, put in your two cents worth, we're going to get around the big Oak table here and uh, we're going to come up with some ideas on how to organize this thing called NASCAR and even come up with the name called NASCAR. And so what was fascinating to me first and foremost was being on the top level there, the open area there, and, and just being two feet, three feet away from this room where everybody met. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's like, that's the room. That is the place where these guys met. I mean, you're talking about everybody – Every, I mean, lawyer, a couple of lawyers and, and farmers, and like I said, moonshine, these people, that's, they're all in this room. It's called a smoke-filled room because it was, I'm sure, cigars and cigarettes and, I mean, it's just legal pads and people around the room, okay? So this is the place where these people met. And it's just so, so historic uh, to think, okay, this is where all the first rules were made up and how we're going to do this. When I say rules, I'm talking about a half or three-fourths sheet of paper. Uh, on how to put this together. And then, so you go there and you go up the, go in the front door and you go up the elevator and there, and there was Red Farmer and Bobby Allison and, and some other folks signing some autographs downstairs in the lobby. But then you go up the elevator and they just had tables. Eddie Roach, by the way, was the person, and I would love this guy. He was the uh, photo manager for International Motor Speedway or International Speedway Corporation and Daytona International Speedway for years and years. And then he, when he retired, he he's put this together every year, stayed in touch with all these guys. He did an awesome, amazing job putting this together. They had race, old race cars, uh, drivers, personalities. And, and so he put tables all, all the way down one side, all the way down the other, had name tags and all these legends are just sitting there side by side on each side and these fans could come up and just hi how you doing shake hands get yep. autographs amazing amazing group of people there it's like holy cow i mean you just all the way down the line you can see all these legends yep. 
sitting there. And I mean, I can't even count them all. It was just so cool. And then to see all the old race cars that were there and, oh my Lord. I mean, I, I stayed, I was, I went to the racetrack that day, but my heart wasn't in the racetrack. Truthfully, it was, I couldn't wait to get over there just to see everybody, but <laughs> right, right. oh my gosh, it was so much fun and, and got, to, you know, some phone numbers, uh, you know, just so I can call them for some stuff I'm doing for out of the groove and, and for pole position and, Anyway, enough rambling, but it was just so much fun to go over there and see everybody. And uh, but the historic factor, though, the, of that of that streamlined hotel, the owner of it, I heard, put like restored it for like six million dollars just right, to, to right, keep right. it in the family and right, keep it right. from deteriorating because of the historic value. But to think, I mean, I get cold chills thinking about this. This is where this whole thing started. Yep, you know. Where they got together, I think it was like 40 or 50 people in the room that day, and they just said, all right, we're going to start this thing called NASCAR. And they didn't have a name for it. They All kinds of acronyms were floating around the room, and someone come up with, I think it was Red Voigt or Red, uh, I'm not sure. I think it was Red Voigt. But he said, let's just call it NASCAR. Okay, that sounds good. That's, that flows off the tongue. Let's do it that that's where it all started. And it was a legal pads and cigarettes and cigars and pens. And there's a photo of scene of everyone who stepped out on the other side, on the other side of the hotel roof there. And they, some knelt down in front, some stood behind and they clicked a photo. T Taylor Warren, I think took the photo. Right, 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 right. Yeah. The late TM. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing, amazing place in history right there. Well, I'm going to tell you, I have two quick stories I'll tell you about the stream yeah. hotel for that, that I experienced. Um, number one, this, I want to say this was 2000 and I think it was four, I think. I think it was the year that uh, Dale Jr. won the, his first Daytona 500, but they had the legends there. And um, I remember, uh, I, I think that year, I think it was actually at the convention center, if I remember right, but I wanted to see what the Streamline Hotel was like. So I walked into the lobby and kind of just looking around, looking like a tourist. And, I, and this was actually, oh gosh, this must have been maybe eight o'clock at night. It just started getting dark and that kind of thing. And I'm looking around, just kind of taking, there were some photos on the wall. This was before they did the, the $6 million uh, you know, renovation of that. And got to talk to somebody. I don't know if it was a manager, if it was a desk clerk, what have you. But we started just talking about you know, the, this, the, the, the factor of this in the history of NASCAR. And the individual, I never did get his name, but, uh, you know, it, it, it sent chills up my spine because he told me that every now and then there is like a, he, he didn't want to use the word ghosts, but for lack of a better word, that's what he used. He says there was like mm-hmm. a ghosts like atmosphere that you could smell the cigars, you could smell the cigarettes, you could hear oh, people wow. talking and he, and I don't know if he was trying to scare me or what, but I mean, I was enthralled to, I mean, we talked maybe, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes or what have you, but I was enthralled to hear him just tell me all these stories. And he was, you know, he was not an older guy, so he'd not been around when this all happened, but apparently, you know, he had heard it, or like I said, maybe he made it up. I don't know, but, you know, it was just very enthralling to, to hear the story that, you know, the place maybe not necessarily was haunted per se, but that there was still some kind of a, a, a carryover effect from what happened back in, was it 1947, I think it was, when the first meeting yeah. was, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then here's my other story that I'll tell you real quick. And I don't think, I don't know if NASCAR still does this, but I know for a couple of years, at least, uh, back around 2005, 2006 or so, they also had a bus tour 
where they would actually drive us around the Daytona area. Oh, yeah. And a lot that. of the places obviously are not there anymore, but they would point out, you know, uh, various shops, you know, that uh, were or various locations where, uh, you know, such and such a person, you know, had their shop here or there or there or what have you. And I remember one of those bus tours in particular, we had Junior Johnson and I, I am totally spazzing on the other name. I can't remember who the other uh, great was that he was talking to, but they were like a row or two ahead of me and, and the bus. And I mean, I just was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm eavesdropping. I admit it. I'm, I'm just, I'm like trying to get, get everything I could hear. It was fascinating to hear these guys talk about, well, do you remember this? Or I remember that. And I'm going, mm. God, I mean, you know, I felt so fortunate, so humble, so, uh, you know, so lucky to be in a situation like that. And there, you know, there were several other drivers. I mean, Bobby Ellison was on that bus. I remember too, as well. And he was in another part of the bus, but I mean, just, you know, if I don't know if NASCAR does it, I don't think they do it anymore. But I mean, it was just such an experience to, you know, even though some of these places weren't even there anymore, they you know they were replaced by you know an office building or a restaurant or what have you. But you know, to to uh, to see you know where you know some of the the bigger names had their shops, it was just really you know uh, one of the more uh, enjoyable things I've ever experienced for sure. Yeah, I, I'm just glad they saved it. You know, especially the the Streamline Hotel where where it all started, because again, you know, it was, I mean, think about this napkins, uh, drinks on the table, yep. pins. I mean, it was very, very informal and it was, you know, just put the word out. We're going to see what we can do to start this little organization. We don't know if it's going to survive or not, but we're going to try our best. So you got to keep in mind, there were a lot of other sanctions out there at the time, little, little small groups of people trying to do the same thing. Bill France senior was mm -hmm. doing, and uh, because at, at that time, very quickly, I know we got to move on here, but there were there were this was happening a lot in those days. You'd have drivers show up at uh, fairgrounds, and it was to go to the fair and see the race. It wasn't the other way around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they would pony up the money in a hat, so to speak, and then they would go out and rain, run the fifty laps or a hundred laps. Well, when they got through racing, the guy who was promoting the race was long gone in his Cadillac. He was gone because he had the money, <laughs> right. and there was like no money. Right, this right. happened a lot of times. And right. so what they were trying to do is two things, get rules that everybody could abide by and make sure that the guy who was promoting the race stayed with the money so everybody could get paid. And more than not, there were times when the guy who was promoting it took off with the money and he was long gone. So there were times when they would, the guy who was promoting the race, they had two guys standing with him at all times. <laughs> And making sure he didn't cut a trail. Security right? because, guards, that's right. Exactly, exactly. And so France wanted to make sure that the rules were equal and everybody got paid, and this was going to become a professional sport eventually. It took a few years for that to really sink in. And so that's what they were trying to do is make this, uh, uh, you know, uh, the rules uh, that we could all stick to, and this is going to be something that we can count on and not this fly by night stuff. And that's what that streamlined hotel idea was, uh, that meeting was all about. So it's always been referred to as the smoke filled room right. in the streamline and to be there standing in that place. And I could, if I wanted to, I could have walked right in that room. I just didn't. But it was just so it's neat. the ghosts. You don't want to be by the ghosts. <laughs> That's true. My, 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 one of them might have ridden home back to North Carolina with me. You know? Anyway, <laughs> we can move on. But it was just exactly. Cool. You know, I, I was going to mention one other thing, too. And I, I, it, it totally slipped my mind what I wanted to ask you. Oh, I know what it was. I know what it was. 
Um, you know, you and I have been covering NASCAR for so many years, and I came yeah. across something. I don't have it in front of me, but I came across something just a few days ago. Wasn't there a actual, um, and, and I don't remember, if it, I, I know I read it, it was either NASCAR had a different, um, different words for the acronym, or there was a different series they were going to call themselves, and then they had to change it because there wasn't an existing series. Do you do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, that's correct. And I'm, I'm I apologize, but I can't remember what it was. But it was there was something with the name with the same lettering as NASCAR, but it was all different. It was all um, the same letters as in N A S C A R, but it was spelled differently. And it was in South Carolina, I want to say. Right, right. And they right. started to use it, and they said, "Wait a minute, hold the phone. We can't because somebody's already got that." Right. And then Red Voice stood up and said, well, why don't you just call it NASCAR? Because it and plus it sounds better. Right. So National Auto National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing. Right. So they came up with, oh, yeah, it sounds a whole lot better than that. So that's kind of how but Red Voigt was the one who was and by the way, he was the one building engines for Red Byron and T-Mona Raymond Parks. But he, you know, he was out of Atlanta building engines. Um and, you know, so anybody that basically had anything to do with building engines or running cars or driving cars, or there was some motorcycle racers, there was some a lawyer or two, there was a bunch of moonshiners there. Right. Uh, out of Georgia, you know, anybody, if you know somebody that's driving a race car and got a pulse, tell them to come. That was kind of <laughs> the way, you know, it was just a ragtag bunch of folks that ended up being there. Exactly. And, uh, exactly. That's how you're right. That that is true. It was uh, going to be something else, and someone already had it registered and trademarked, and they that, and so as fate would have it, they came up with actually a better name than what they were going to use. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. All right. Let's let's move on. Uh, you know, one of the uh, we we what I like to call our departments every week, and one mm-hmm. of the the top departments is the car number. Every episode yeah. we do of a lifetime in NASCAR podcast is associated with a car number. So this is episode 53. And of course, we're going to talk about epi- or car number 53 in the uh, in the cup series. And like a lot of, um, you know, a lot of cars we've talked about over the last probably 10, 12 weeks or so, unique situation again, because there really has not been a lot of success with this number in terms of wins. Ben, tell us no. a little bit more about that. Well, this is a cool story because you're right. Uh, bad news, good news. Bad news, it's only gone to victory lane one time. But the good news, it's got a little bit of a Cinderella story to it. And the, the driver of the car was a guy named Bob Burdick. And he was from Omaha, Nebraska. And he wins the prize for being the only driver from Nebraska to ever win a race in NASCAR. I'll be darned. And, I'll be darned. Yeah, the only, only guy to ever do it. And he won at what is now Atlanta Motor Speedway, but at the time it was called Atlanta International Raceway. This mm-hmm. happened on March 26, 1961. He was driving in Pontiac, unsponsored car owned by his father, Roy Burdick, and carried the number 53. It was a white car with red letters, a very nondescript car. But um, he was, like I say, from Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, and actually it was going to go to Marvin patch Marvin, uh, who was in a prominent car, uh, broke an axle late in the race and his crew took him to the garage and they changed the axle within five laps and he was back, but he was many laps down, but that's pretty impressive to change a rear axle in only five laps. Then the lead went to Rex white, uh, who ended up finishing 
uh, second, but I think uh, Mr. Burdick ended up passing him. But keep in mind, though, that I mean, he had a he had a pickup crew. He had a, a car that really wasn't all that good as far as uh, being able to win the race, and uh, it was kind of a pickup uh, situation. Didn't have a great uh, car, not a great crew, not just in the field, if you will. And he ends up winning the race, and it was a super speed, speedway event. Um, only time he ever won one and, uh, just a great Cinderella sort of story. He, he, uh, I was going to look here in my notes. He, he really, uh, was kind of back in the field and, and just thought it was going to be another Sunday drive. And as it turns out by the end of the race, he's in victory lane and great day for him and great day for the family. But it was a uh, very much, like I said, a Cinderella story and only time he ever won one. And, right. uh, yeah. Well, speaking of Cinderella, and I know this is a very bad segue, but not that race in 61, but there were three races at Atlanta International Raceway that year. And the last race, um, which was ironically won by David Pearson, you're never going to guess who was the trophy girl. I'll give you three guesses. Um, Linda Vaughn. Very good. Very, very good. Her uh, first I had a feeling. <laughs> her first I ever, I had a feeling. What's, that's right. I mean, the Dixie 400, first ever um, ra- NASCAR race, and it started everything for her at that point. She just, you know, she was 18 years old. She had just won a, um, and this, you know, this, all this stuff is fresh in my mind because we talked to, I talked with her last week for a story I'm doing for Auto Week, and she had won a local um, contest, and uh, it was for one of her local uh, tracks in Georgia. And then the next thing you know, they said, well, you know, why don't you try out for this uh, uh, thing at the Atlanta NASCAR race? She winds up winning that and the rest is history. So, um, yeah, I mean, just I'm really, you know, I've been writing this story for a couple of days now. I still got a little bit more to do. And hopefully by the time the podcast is posted, we'll have the Linda Vaughn story up in autoweek.com. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Atlanta International Raceway, which eventually became Atlanta Motor Speedway, um, you know, just a, a, a great place to to win a race. But and then uh, also you mentioned about Bob Burdick. Now, um, the first time that number 53, though, was used was uh, tell us about that one, uh, Ben. Well, it was used, and we've talked about this racetrack. This racetrack seems to be the place to attract new things, new yep. people or something. But first time it was used, again, was at Langhorn Speedway. And uh, it was used by a gentleman by the name of George Masker, M-A-S-K-E-R. It was on September 17th, 1950 at Langhorn uh, Speedway up in Pennsylvania. But, uh, yeah, number 53 – uh, was not a number, I guess it was a very successful, but, uh, it had one victory. So good old Bob Burdick. Thank you, sir, for putting us in the win column. But yeah, it was, it was used by Mr. Masker there at, uh, Langhorn Speedway, okay. that circular racetrack that did not have a front stretch or a back stretch. Exactly. Exactly. It's wow. kind of like my, my old, um, my old little slot car track. It was just a total circle. That's how it was, you know? yeah. I was about eight years old when I got it for Christmas. I remember that it's like this. It was yesterday, but all right. That. And speaking of speedways, our track of the week is another speedway. This one actually has, um, a very good, um, uh, history behind it. I mean, I, even I've heard about it it's and, and tell us about this one, Ben. Yeah. Old dominion speedway in Manassas, Virginia, and it ran in the, Cup Series, then called the Grand National Series, uh, and there was uh, it ran from 1958 to 1966. 
drivers by the name of Frankie Snyder, who was one of those one-time wonders we talked about. Uh, Ned Jarrett won there a couple times, Junior Johnson a couple times. And a little bit of a trivia question, there's a guy by the name of Elmer Langley, who won in uh, twice in NASCAR competition. He won the last race there in July 7th, 1966. Also won at Spartanburg, South Carolina in 1966. But he also had another role in NASCAR for many years. I just wonder if you remember what that role was. Hmm. Do we know? Do you know? Wait, 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 wait. Let me think. Let me think. Let me think. A little bit of trivia here. Elmo Langley. He was. Oh, I I'm drawing a blank. Okay. All right. Let me tell you. All right. I'll tell you. Okay. He was the longtime uh, NASCAR Cup Series driver. And but he was also the pace car driver for NASCAR for many years. After he retired from, from NASCAR and sadly, very sadly, we lost Elmo to a heart attack. The first year we went to Japan, he suffered a heart attack there in Japan uh, while uh, not in the pace car, but during the weekend of his driving duties uh, at the first race in Japan. But uh, as he was actively there to drive the pace car, he was not driving when the heart attack occurred, but uh, he was there to do it, and he, we lost him there. But uh, Elmo was a longtime NASCAR driver, drove the number 64 uh, Fords for many years. They were green, and David Pearson absolutely unequivocally would not park beside him in the garage area right. because right. his car was green. Right, exactly. exactly. Yeah, but uh, Elmo was uh, <clears throat> was a good man, and... Uh, but yeah, he, he had the dual roles of being a driver. And then when he retired from driving, he drove the pace car. Right. And let's, uh, we're going to conclude this episode of a lifetime in the NASCAR podcast and with our driver of the week. And we're kind of going full circle here in a sense, because we started the show talking about um, the, one of the biggest names in, in racing period, but obviously he his, made his mark in the open wheel world. And that was Mario Andretti when he won the 1967 Daytona 500 but our driver of the week is another gentleman who was known for his IndyCar prowess as well, but he did quite a bit of NASCAR racing, uh, yeah. uh, all things considered. Ben, tell us about that, our driver. Yeah, of the week. And, and you know, uh, we, you and I have been in this for a long time, and sometimes you just discover things you didn't realize. There's a, a one fact I didn't realize about. I knew he drove in, in the NASCAR uh, Cup Series, but I didn't. there's one fact I didn't know. Johnny Rutherford uh, started 35 times in the Cup Series. He had one win on February 22nd, 1963, and it came at Daytona in the 125-mile qualifying race. He was driving for Smokey Eunuch. Mm-hmm. He had two top fives and five top tens, but the fact that I didn't realize was that his uh, final start in NASCAR came on November 6th, 1988 at Phoenix, and that was the day that Alan Kowicki won his first NASCAR race. I didn't oh, know he was in that race. I didn't know that either. And I was there I, at that race. I'll yeah. And, uh, and, um, Mr. Rutherford started 34th and finished 39th. And I just didn't know he was in that race either. And I, I was not at that race that day. You were, I wasn't, but I didn't know Johnny Rutherford was in that race, but yeah, he has one victory at the, at Daytona in the 125 mile qualifying race. And some fans may say, well, they don't count those anymore. Well, they did back in 1963 as a full race win. Not sure the year they stopped counting them, but back in the early 60s, they did count them as an actual official victory. 
but that was the only time he won and that was at Daytona. So there you go. But yeah, I didn't know, I didn't know that was his final victory or final uh, NASCAR race in November of 1988. I just didn't know that. I'll be darned. Yeah. Big text. About that? Yeah, Johnny Rutherford. We, did, we lost Johnny a couple of years ago, if I'm not mistaken, I think. Uh, no, I think he's still with us. Is he still with us? Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh, boy. Lives, boy still lives. I'll wait for the egg off my face on that one. Okay. okay. Lives in, still lives in Texas to my knowledge. Right. Yeah. He was he was also a longtime pace car driver too, if I remember correctly too. Uh, I'm not not sure about that Brandy one, car, but Brandy I'm, car. I mean, yeah. Oh God, no, that's that could very well be because I'm more versed on the NASCAR side than I am the IndyCar. You're probably right about that. Yeah, because I think uh, I think um, who was it? Um, Sarah Fisher. She took over for him. Uh, Johnny, he had you know he uh, I think he had some health issues or something. And uh, Sarah mm-hmm. Fisher who, you know, has a very big presence uh, in Speedway, Indiana. She has a uh, restaurant down there. She has a uh, uh, indoor go-kart facility. She's got a lot of businesses there. She, uh, last I heard, she still is doing the pace car uh, driving for the IndyCar series. So um, yeah, Johnny Rutherford, big text as they call him, big yeah. guy. So, yeah. well, Ben, you know, again, as always a fantastic episode of a Lifetime and NASCAR podcast. And uh, I'll tell you this one, I really, I mean, I enjoy every single one, but this one I really enjoy because. Yeah, this, this is fun. Yeah, the, the always theme, fun. The theme, the one hit wonder is just, you know, it just it got me going, you know, because, you know, it, it's something that a lot of fans, especially the really diehard fans, you know, a lot of times they'll forget about a certain guy that, you know, may have only won one race. But when you mention that name or you mention that race and if either they were there in person or watching it on TV or what have you, um, they they immediately gravitate to it. And it's just like. Oh yeah. And then they start talking kind of like the drivers we were talking about at the legends of racing, you know, where they just start talking and, you know, re- recalling the, the good old days, the occasion of the bad old days, you know, depending on how their yeah. race was and that kind of thing. But I mean, I yeah. really enjoyed this episode because we just, well, same, we covered, same you know, here. Yeah, we covered a lot of ground. Definitely a lot. We we'll always have a lot of fun with these. And the fun part real quick, the fun part is you might be able to go on and online or on the internet or maybe YouTube or something, find some of these, old races they're they're so much fun to watch i mean you can never get tired of watching them and and i love i spend a lot of time watching the old old races and probably more time than i should (laughs) (laughs) the honey the honeydew list is getting longer and i'm getting the one eye here so uh probably need not not to do that too much (laughs) well i'll tell you i and i and i think it's coming up uh when is it is it this i think it's in march i believe it is or it might be april but uh they have a big racing show here every year they the last two years because of covid uh got canceled in 2020 last year was back in i think september i think it was or october but they're going to be back in their normal time slot this year i think it's it's sometime in march i, I gotta double check but there's a there's a racing show that they have here every year uh draws a lot of fans um you know a lot of old time guys you know and we're talking more so the guys that raced you know, on the smaller tracks, you know, in and around the Chicago area and that kind of thing. But I'm going to go make sure there's one guy there. I, I don't know his name, but I'm definitely going to go to his, his table because he has a, a massive, massive table of old time videos, races, you know, races. Oh, wow. video. I'm going to cool. get that and send it to you because I think you will definitely want to. Oh, I'd love it. Now I'm sure. going to tell him though I want a commission about the, the, all the sales. You're going to probably spend a lot of money. You know, so. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Well, deal. listen, my friend. As always, another great show in the books here, a lifetime in NASCAR podcast. Ben can't thank you enough, and uh, thank you. I, I, uh, I just I, I get enthralled listening to you. Sometimes I just let you talk because I want to hear more, more, and more, and more, like our listeners okay. do so as well. So a lot of fun, buddy. 
Exactly. Well, we'll talk. We'll catch you and everyone else here. Hope you have a great weekend and week, everyone. And hope you enjoyed episode number 53 of the Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. We'll catch you next week with the Lifetime in NASCAR podcast episode number 54. And I'm really curious. Did anyone ever win the 54? I'm curious about mm-hmm. that. So. Yes, they did. They did. Okay. Well, stay, stay tuned. That's right. Stay tuned. All right, everyone. You take care. Have a good week. And thank you again ever so much for listening to Ben and myself right here on the Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. Lifetime in NASCAR is hosted by Ben White and Jerry Bunkowski and produced by Josh Mull. A Lifetime in NASCAR is a proud member of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network and we're available on all major podcasting platforms. Visit GroovyMotorsports.com, that's G-R-O-O-D-Y Motorsports.com for more shows. And don't forget to check out the Out of the Groove Weekly Viewer's Guide. The Weekly Viewer's Guide is fresh every week of the season and includes exclusive content from myself and Ben White you won't find anywhere else. Get it every week. It's all fresh, it's all free, and it's all on GroovyMotorsports.com. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.